Welcome back to Those Happy Places, the podcast that treats theme parks, rides, and attractions like literature. I'm Buddy Duquesne. And I'm Alice White. And Alice, guess what? What? It is our 30th episode-versary. Our 30th episode-versary? We've done 30 whole episodes? Well, we've done more than 30 episodes if you count all the bonus episodes and, and other stuff that we put out there. But yeah, this is our 30th like official episode, and wow. uh, it's, it's a lot. Well, congratulations, buddy. Yeah, congratulations to you too, Alice. Uh, and you know <laughs> that every 10 episodes, we like to do something a little different. Uh, reach out to the community, talk about theme parks in a new and interesting way. And we settled on uh, today's subject, uh, kind of, kind of, you know, in collaboration. That um, what 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 stories do we know or do we think we could attach to theme parks that aren't explicitly already told? Maybe more uh, succinctly, can we write ride fiction? I like to call this the fan fiction episode. <laughs> this is the episode where we have we have written short stories and we reached out to the community and received four really excellent short stories all about different rides uh, and and what kind of like backstory or uh, or interesting new kind of tale we can put in these uh, in these settings. Yeah, I mean like. Uh, we are inspired by other kinds of media all the time, TV, movies, novels that make us want to write our own take on that world or uh, imagine an alternate ending or do something new with the characters. And it feels like we don't do this with theme park rides for some reason. No, I feel like uh, if you were to go onto a, a fan fiction website, you can find literally millions of stories about things like Star Wars or Harry Potter or uh, any other kind of fandom. But a theme park ride doesn't seem to get that same kind of treatment. And we here at Those Happy Places uh, feel like theme park rides should be treated as as literature is treated and therefore fan fiction <laughs> <laughs> oh man i'm so excited to start uh hearing some of these stories today um i i hope that by the end we have some kind of idea of what kinds of stories theme parks make us want to tell and then maybe we can um kind of use this episode as a springboard to maybe see what other kinds of things we might want to say or do with theme park fan fiction. So I'm really excited. <laughs> Me too. I'm really excited. Uh, shall we get started? Yeah, let's jump right in. I believe we were going to go with your story first. Yeah. All right. We're going to we're going to read the story that I wrote. Uh, I'm not going to tell you the title of it because that gives it away on what uh, on what it's about. Oh, it's a surprise. I'm just going to. It's a surprise. I'm okay. just going to I'm just going to dive right in. Ready? Yes. <clears throat> You're never going to make it. She shook her head at me, but I knew she was wrong. I was going to make it. I had to make it. There was too much at stake. Money, fame, power. I had to take the chance. You don't know that, Denise, I said softly, cupping her soft cheek in my hand. I've been training for a day like this for my whole life. Tears started to well in her beautiful brown eyes, and I pulled her in tight for a hug, a hug that might be our last. Just be careful, Oscar. I don't want to lose you. You won't lose me. I won't let it happen. I'll be back before you know it, and our lives will be changed forever. I love you. I love you, too. 
I kissed her then, pouring all of my love and care into her lips, hoping that she could feel everything I meant without having to say it. I've never been good at words, choosing instead to let my actions do the talking for me. Denise knew, and she loved me anyways, loved me too much probably. I often thought that she could do a lot better than me, but she stayed. Even if something were to go wrong, I knew she'd be strong enough to go on without me. But I couldn't let myself get sucked into that line of thinking. I had to focus. Denise would be there when I got back. My truck was ready to go and waiting for me just outside our little house. It was loaded up with all my gear, primed and polished and prepared by my best friend and colleague. Alex was waiting in the passenger seat, their legs bouncing up and down in anticipation and probably fear. The rain was starting to pick up, not a full-blown storm yet, but definitely close. We didn't really get a lot of rain, but when it did come, it came with a vengeance. She's not coming, Alex asked, tilting their head to the side and wiping their sweaty hands on their knees to try to dry off. I shook my head and got in the cab of the truck, wiping rain off my face. She's staying here. She's terrified. Honestly, dude, I don't blame her. This is a massive risk, you know. I know, I snapped, a little too harsh, but Alex nodded. They understood my stress level and short temper. I sighed and started the truck, pulled out onto the main road, and headed for the beach. We were only a few miles away, but the drive seemed to take an eternity. We waited in a line of cars that moved at a glacial pace, slowly following the hordes of people who were heading to the same place we were. The line twisted and turned down the switchback road that dropped off into a cliff, nothing but a measly metal bar separating us from the ocean-battered cliffside. Finally, we made it down to the beach, abandoned our truck, and grabbed the gear, then went right for the water. I saw a lot of familiar faces, locals and minor celebrities in the field. I nodded at the ones I knew and received stiff nods in return. Their faces were lined with worry, but excitement had started to course through the crowd, tensions and adrenaline high. When I reached the perfect spot, I stopped and stared out at the ocean. The storm had picked up and between the high winds and the earthquake that had hit only hours before, the waves were as high as houses, higher. Each set that rolled in had a wave that was pushing record-breaking heights, crashing into the ocean with a force that could be heard all the way up the beach. This is it, Alex. It's now or never. Alex tensed but helped me unpack my board and my wetsuit. I suited up while they waxed my board to perfection, and without giving myself time to think, I dove right into the water, letting the icy spray bring my mind sharply into focus. I paddled out with the confidence of a braver man, diving under the brakes as they threatened to sweep me away. I had done this a million times. There was no difference in my mind here. It was just a taller wave than usual. I thought about the deals I had made, the sponsors looking to make my dreams and my wife's dreams come true. I thought about the good that the money would do, the life I'd be able to live. Opportunity and skills don't often meet like this so perfectly that it couldn't have been planned. I was going to surf this wave, break a record, and change my life. I sat on my board and waited, and then I saw it, the perfect wave. It was racing toward me. I was in the optimal spot to catch it. I started paddling with it, felt it carry me up and up and up and up. And suddenly, it was as if time was moving in slow motion. I was at the top of the crest, looking nearly straight down at the ocean below, suspended in midair, just hanging. You know how they say when you're about to die, or nearly die as it were, your life flashes before your eyes? Mine didn't. I saw only Denise. I saw her smile, her laugh, the beautiful crease between her eyebrows when she's angry or concentrating. I saw her soft stomach, her long fingers, the depths of her eyes. I thought about the future we could make, the past we had fought through, the love we shared. And as I hung there, staring at my triumph or my downfall, straight down into nothingness, caught in that hang time, I did the only thing I could. 
I screamed. And finally, the world caught up with me and I went racing down the wall of water, finding my wits just in time to stand, the soles of my feet gripping the board with practice strength. The wind rushed through my hair, the spray stung my face, and my heart leapt into my throat. And then it was over. I had won. I had conquered the wave. And nothing would ever be the same again. And hang that's time. hang time. Oh my gosh, it was a hang time fanfic. <laughs> <laughs> when you said when you said the waves were so big because of the earthquake and the storm at the same time, I was like, "This is hang time, isn't it?" This is hang time. <laughs> oh my god, I loved it. It was so good. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, That's Knott's my Berry hang Farm, time fan fiction. Nasberry Farm. If you're listening, uh, Cedar Point executives, if you're listening, um, uh, that that one's not free. TM 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 TM. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, yeah, I decided that the best way to conquer my fear of the scariest roller coaster I've ever been on, hang time, <laughs> that I needed to, uh, I needed to write about it. You, um, you needed to turn it into a, a gripping journey of fame and fortune, and give Oscar <laughs> a waiting wife at home, Denise, who 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 just needed him to survive. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> and he wins. He does. He, he does. conquers it. He does win. He yeah. beats the wave. Uh, (laughs) that was amazing (laughs) i i you you have already won this wasn't a competition but you've already won this competition in my heart (laughs) well alice uh, (laughs) i don't know how i'm going to follow that one uh but i've written a little something that i think is at least an interesting concept um, Good, go for it. I'm I'm excited to hear it. Uh, mine doesn't really have a title, but I'd like to say that the year is 1998, uh, <laughs> and it's not the real 1998, uh, but it is 1998 as we imagined it. Uh, Ooh. And also that the place is Oakland and San Francisco because that's where I've been a lot lately. Um, and that's it. Okay. <clears throat> okay. Chim chum. Rocket rod service between Oakland and San Francisco <laughs> has been temporarily interrupted. Please seek alternate transportation options at this time. Chim chum. <laughs> the cheerful computerized voice clicked off promptly, and the line of growingly desperate commuters collectively sh- collectively shrugged. The rocket rod system that had connected the two cities and countless cities like them was well known for two things: its blistering speeds and its remarkable unreliability. The 67-second trip would now take several excruciating minutes aboard the aging and, overall, much less novel people-mover system. As the mass of commuters began their march toward the upper-level tracks and the ever-reliable people-mover cars prepared for the sudden influx of frustrated passengers, Marvin Lohman, mechanic, was hard at work at the station's far end, his arm deep in the guts of one such car. Splayed out on the ground to get the right angle, he was unfortunately directly in the range of the automatic door sensor, causing it to constantly open and close with a cheerful cheem choom of its own while repeating the people mover's trademark greeting. Hi, I'm a people mover. I move people. Marvin groaned, (laughs) tugged on one wire, reconnected another, and closed the panel. Standing up to dust himself off, he adjusted his beaten up name tag and straightened his light blue jumpsuit. Well, Unit R3X, it looks like that whatever the problem was should be more or less fixed. How do you feel? Hi, I'm a people mover. I move people. 
Oh, right. Maintenance mode. Let me see here. Stepping lightly aboard this small car, Marvin found himself hardly proud of his handiwork. While the people mover system was more or less foolproof, each car moving at a leisurely pace designed more for scenic views of the bay than for efficiency, uh, there were rarely any accidents. That said, accidents could happen. These cars were each given basic personalities back when they were installed. The data for them contained on large format disks that allowed them to answer basic questions posed by passengers. When connected to the central system, the cars seemed downright conversational and were almost annoyingly dedicated to the job of moving people around the cities. Marvin opened an interior panel in the small cabin, which could only really hold six or seven people at a stretch. These things were built with the economy of scale in mind, shuttling people in small groups to a variety of individualized destinations. Passengers could select an exit point from a series of buttons, and the cars would leave the main loop for them to step off into the station while picking up the next group. The switch engaged, the main personality disc, and a cheerful cheem-choom sounded once again. Hi there, I'm a people mover and I move people. The usual greeting sounded much more natural from within the cabin, with slight shifts in tone and timber making it still distinctly computerized, yet feeling more human. Marvin had to admit that it was just a bit infectious. Unit R3X, uh, welcome back to service. How do you feel? Just chipper, skipper. Was I out of commission for a while? That's right, R3X. You had a little bit of an accident. Uh, do you have any records of the last ride you took? Accessing the files now, chief. Wait, hold on there, R3X. It's better if you don't go looking. The constant whirring from the panel next to Marvin seemed to indicate that the personality within the car had already found the incident report. Uh, hey, R3X, it's uh, it's not a big deal. You're probably just getting so used to some of the new programming, and a slight f flicker in the overhead lights showcased the agitation of the people mover. I'm a people mover. I move people. The doors of the cabin slid shut automatically, snapping closed before Marvin could react. Wait, R3X, it's happening again. You need to disengage. I move people. The wheels beneath the car slowly rolled to life, and Marvin felt the distinct wobble of transferring onto the main tracks. Soon they'd be in the express loop. He had to do something. R3X, emergency stop code 539er, disengage. The previous week, a passing motorist had seen panicked passengers waving their arms out the windows of this car. It had taken the prime directive too literally and had put them on a days-long loop around the cities, moving the people as far and as fast as it could. Marvin thought he'd repaired the problem, but it seemed to be ingrained in this aging software on this machine. We can't stop. your people. You've got to move. None of the interior <laughs> controls were responding. Marvin was trapped. Luckily... Nobody was seriously injured in last week's incident. Marvin would just have to hope for a similar rescue. As they passed through the darkened tunnel and towards the above-ground tracks, Marvin sighed. It was going to be a long night. Cheem choom. <laughs> and that's it, the oh, end. Oh, wonderful, wonderful. I thought maybe maybe a little 2001 A Space Odyssey, but like 1998 A pub Public Transit Odyssey. 1998 a Tomorrowland Odyssey. You somehow got us references to rocket rods and people movers and Rex, our our captain from I, Star Tours. I didn't all know at the same time. I didn't know what to name the people mover, and I was like, well, it needs like a robot sounding name. And then I was like, fine, 
It's Captain R3X. Rex. <laughs> and he's still getting used to his programming. Yeah. Oh, that's so good. <laughs> that was very excellent. Thank you, bud. Thank you. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's important that it takes place in 1998 because that was the year that the Rocket Rods opened and closed. And, and closed. <laughs> <laughs> so. Uh, yeah. Wow. Wow, that was so fun. Yeah, I, I loved I it. I'm, it. <laughs> I'm sorry, I didn't want to ruin it by laughing immediately. <laughs> the second you said the word rocket rods, I was thrown back to 1998. It was so good. Uh, um, I, I, for the record, don't think that the People Mover is scary. <laughs> uh, no, no, the People Mover is a lovely ride. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But like, what if the People Mover uh, couldn't let you do that, Dave? So... <laughs> Very good. Thank you so much, yeah, bud. no problem. Uh, so, Alice, you're going to read the next one, right? Yeah, I'm going to read the next one. We're, we're moving on from, from our creations to listener creations, and uh, I'm going to read the next one from a uh, friend of the pod and former voice on the pod. Uh, we've got uh, Lena Jean here with a story that she's written about um, one of our, our, our favorite monsters. Okay. Okay. <clears throat> There is a legend that we already know, a tale of a monster, a behemoth, a frightening protector atop a snowy mountain. But there is one legend that only a few have ever been told. There is a snowy mountain range that only the bravest venture into, the mountain peaks so high that they break through the clouds. Once the Royal and Anandapur Tea Company sent trains through their pass, delivering supplies to those daring enough to brave the icy slopes. It was after a series of accidents and disappearances that the railroad pass was closed. The villagers fearful of the rumors that the Yeti, a beast of legend and protector of the Forbidden Mountain, must have been responsible for the attacks. We, do, we know not where this creature came from. We know only that the village respects and fears her power and strength and desperately warns vil- visitors away from the trains. Professor Pima Dorji is well known for being the expert behind the Yeti Museum, located conveniently outside the train station. The tourists frequent the museum, but they are not scared, not like Sir Kazong. One villager knows better, though. Pima Dorji's mother sit out, sits outside in the cold with a knitted shawl and wrinkled hands, holding a, pup, a cup of piping hot tea, and she invites what tourists will listen to sit with her so she may tell them the true story of the Yeti. Long ago, before Circazong, before the railroad, the Yeti was alone atop the mountain. No one dared climb to the, to the Forbidden Peak then either, except for one man. He was a researcher from the Alps whose names we do not know, but he was in love with his work and dreamed to see a mountain different than the one he had come from. He had intentions of bringing his work back with him to spread to the world, to tell the secrets of the Forbidden Mountain. Along the way, this man slipped on the icy rocks and and fell, breaking his leg. It was over for him. He would freeze to death here. It was then that she appeared over a hill, a humanoid shape covered in white fur. The man was afraid, but he did not move, looking the beast over and then meeting her eyes, which were bright blue and piercing like the ice. She moved closer and stopped, tense and growling as she looked him over. She seemed as though she was hesitating. The man spoke in his language, desperation in his voice, but she could not understand him. When she reached for him, he was certain it was the end. But then she gently lifted him up, holding him in her arms, and carried him to a nearby cave for warmth and safety. The two did not understand each other, but the man could see it in her eyes. She had been alone and was curious. She never left his side. Over time, the man recovered and the beast protected him from the winds. 
When he could finally sit up again, she would bring him meats that he would cook over the fire and then share with her. She was two times his size, but he never looked upon her with fear again, only gratitude and kindness. Sometimes he would draw her or speak in his language while showing her pictures of other mountains, other creatures, other humans. Her blue eyes were soft and intelligent, but he saw without question a sadness behind her gaze that he could not place. One day as thanks, the man gifted her a ribbon. She inspected it curiously, uncertain of what it was for. He very carefully approached her, which she allowed to his surprise, and he tied it to her long and matted fur, pushing it out of her eyes. It was at this point that the mother on the porch always grows sad, her wrinkled brow creasing up as she folds her hands together. Some say the Yeti was once a beautiful young woman of a village of the, on the other side of the mountain, but she had been put under a mysterious curse. There was never a way for her to tell the young man that she cared for him, as she could not understand him and he could not understand her. But when he left the mountain, she cried, for she could not follow. She was bound to this mountain, cursed to protect it, and she had lost her one and only love. He loved her too. He was fascinated by the kindness she had showed him and set off to the Alps to continue his research. But legend has it that the curse followed him home. Not long after, villagers at the base of the Matterhorn began hearing a roaring cry from the peaks and never saw the man again. Some say that the two beasts long for each other's company but can never meet again. Some say they are angry because the humans that visit them are not the lost love that they yearn for. Some say that if you see an eagle flying as you... If you see an eagle flying as you travel into the mountain, you are seeing the bird who delivers letters between them. Some say that the Yeti attacks because they are trying to defend future explorers from being cursed themselves. To this day, those explorers who still dare to visit the Forbidden Mountain attempt to communicate their good intentions by dropping ribbons or hair ties onto the icy mountainside. Gifts like the one the Yeti's love once bestowed upon her. But grief has driven them both mad. The woman sits on her porch at night, and sometimes, when the roar echoes down into the village, she whispers to passerby that the Yeti is crying. Something she's crazy. Do you? Oh, man. Yay! Oh, so that was really good. good! Oh, my God! Oh, Lena Jean, thank you so much! Strong mom, cold dad. Strong mom and frost dad are... Uh, our, our lost love separated by by miles and continents and mountains between oh I love them and I love their love I, I love that their love that was so beautiful there, there's this love so, that is too pure for this world it's too pure for this world and, and, and Lena Jean you gave us that precious gift and it's wonderful yeah. thank you thank you Lena um, Alice I think I'm gonna read the next one I think it's your turn. Okay, so mine is from friend of the show, Aslam Chaudhry, uh, and it is titled Main Street Cinema. <clears throat> it's it's kind of a, I've been told that it's a bit of a film noir type piece, so I'm going to try and read it with a, a little bit of a fast talking sort of a thing going on here. We'll, we'll see. We'll see how it sounds. Yes. <clears throat> Charlie Parrish left the police force looking for more action, but as he flicked the six of spades towards his upturned fedora, overshooting it by a foot, he realized there wasn't any action left. He wondered whether the landlord was going to ask for the rent this month. Seemed like he always did. Taking a glance around his office one last time before closing his eyes and contemplating closing up shop, he noticed even his cat couldn't be bothered to raise his eyes at the growing pile of playing cards being tossed across the room. What kind of detective has a cat? The voice startled him. Charlie straightened his tie and glanced at his watch and realized he'd nodded off. 
Well, I had a pit bull, but he left to work in a chorus line in Vegas. My name's Daisy Marlowe. I assume this means you're Charlie Parrish, she asked, holding Charlie's desk placard. The tone in her voice left, let him know that he, that she wasn't impressed. If that's the only option left, I guess I'll take it. Are you with the bank? No, I'm not with the bank. I need your help. Charlie was immediately skeptical. She was clearly a woman of means. He could tell by the way she dressed and the way she stood waiting for the world to tend to her needs. I'm usually up for that sort of thing, he said, but I don't have the disposition required to be a butler, lady. I don't need that kind of help, she said. Her cool, tough demeanor melted away as she fell into the chair in front of Charlie's desk. My husband is dead, and the police won't do anything to find his killer. Wait a minute, I think I saw this in the newspaper. Your husband was Henry Marlowe? Cops say he died of natural causes, lady. I'm sorry for your loss, but the guy... But the guy you want to complain to lives in a house with a steep roof. This is a four-story walk-up. <laughs> I know my husband wasn't perfect. Most saw him as this charming prince of a man, and he had his fair share of extracurriculars, and if people knew what I knew, they'd think I should be happy. But I loved him. And even though he had a few shady dealings and acquaintances, I still want his killer brought to justice. Justice left this town, and I don't have enough gas in the tank to drive to where it went. Charlie stood up and gestured for her to leave. What? You said... Oh, wait. You said shady dealings? Yes, he was involved with Willie Whiteglove. Willie Whiteglove? Leader of that group of gangsters masquerading as legitimate businessmen? He sat back down. Yes, and I know they threatened him. And I know they're the types who make good on their threats... I'd had his driver keep an eye on him. He's a goofy sort, but reliable. And the only time I can't account for it, my husband's whereabouts, is a three-hour block in the afternoon on the day he died. Then I found this in his jacket pocket. She placed the ticket stub on Charlie's desk, the 11 a.m. showing at Main Street Cinema. When he came home, he acted like he knew it was the last time we'd ever see each other. And then he was gone that night. I don't care what it costs, Mr. Parrish. Please find my husband's killer. Main Street Cinema was the kind of place where all sorts of seedy things went down. He'd known the place well as a cop, a gumshoe, and a fan of film. He stuffed the ticket stub into his pocket, pulled his forty-five from his desk drawer, and put it in his holster, then walked over to his hat. Mrs. Marlowe, I'm gonna find out what happened to your husband. He put his hat on his head, and a handful of playing cards cascaded down around him. <laughs> you can count on me. As Charlie opened the door, he turned back to the cat. Mind the store, Brutus. You're in charge. The cat's name is Brutus? What else? He drove to Main Street Cinema, his mind racing. Willie Whiteglove was trying to go clean, or at least look like he was. Construction. Marlowe knew his way around real estate. He was building uptown condos for the rich and reckless. Why kill him? Probably because he wouldn't do what they were leaning him on him to do. White Glove's construction front had a building collapse last month. No one was hurt. They said it was weak beams. Why not just give him the old lead kiss? Poison. Poison would make it look more natural and keep whatever clean cops are left in this town from looking too closely at the connections between Marlowe and White Glove. Charlie got out of his car and looked at the marquee. His favorite western was playing, but he wasn't there to buy a ticket. Charlie slipped back, slipped in the back and went up the stairs to the office. That's when he heard the voice. Shouldn't have come here, Parrish. 
Marlo's old lady hire you? You think a broad with her kind of cash could do better. Willie White Glove, as I live and breathe. You look good, Willie. Ready for the front page. But I'm not sure handcuffs will go with those shoes. The only metal that touches these wrists is 24 karat gold, Parrish. You've got it twisted. Oh, so you didn't poison Henry Marlowe? Because he wouldn't buy your subpar construction materials for his condos? Because that's what I figure you did. And they give out handcuffs for that, Willie. Free of charge. Willie opened a case on his desk containing a syringe and vials. Too smart for your own good, you know that, Parrish? That's not what my ex-wives all say. Problem is, a guy like you can't be bought. Willie filled the syringe with a liquid from a vial. So you're going to have to be found dead of natural causes, too. Well, that would be something I have in common with Henry Marlowe. There is one thing I don't, though, Willie. What's that, Parrish? I pack heat, and I like making sure everyone around me is nice and warm. Charlie pulled the forty-five from under his coat. So let's all go to the lobby. The end. Oh, yay! Let's all go to the lobby. That's such a good button. I love that. I have a question. uh, And I guess it's for you, Alice, because Aslam is not on the call. Um, Do you think Willie White Glove is Mickey Mouse? Oh, absolutely. Uh, So I really should have done like a, you're going to be have to, you're going to have to be found dead of natural causes too. (laughs) (laughs) No, I don't like hearing that out of Mickey's voice. (laughs) The problem with you, Marlo, is you can't be bought. (laughs) (laughs) The only metal that touches these wrists is 24 karat gold. (laughs) Wow, that's really really good. That's a very good voice. Aslam, that was delightful. That was so... I I really liked that. That was so good. The main street street of Disneyland being this kind of idyllic, pastoral, 1920s kind of a town... And then you drop a hard-boiled detective onto it and make Mickey Mouse a a mob boss. It's perfect. I love it. It's perfect. It was very good. Thank you so much, I would read much more of the Main Street Mysteries. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, All right. I think it's my turn. Yeah, I think. So you're going to read this next one, right? Yeah, I'm going to read the sex one, uh, which was written by friend of the pod and former special guest of the pod, Charles Gassin. All right. We have we have such lovely listeners and frequent guests and friends of the pod. Uh, everyone is uh, is so great. Thank yeah. you so much. It's part of why I, I like I'm, doing these uh, ten episode celebrations because we get to like have contributions from all our friends of the pod. You know. Yeah, it's wonderful. It's awesome. All right. <clears throat> so this one uh, that I'm about to read, Charles Gustine wrote us a story called Progress. <clears throat> Once, a long time ago, I lived in the future. It wasn't some wild, speculative Jetsons future. It was 1993, and I was cooking Christmas dinner in the year 2000. I was surrounded by pretty achievable stuff. There were virtual reality video games that Grandma could master after one tutorial. There was voice automation across the whole smart house, though that wasn't without its flaws. I've burned more turkeys than I care to count. I never have figured out that darn voice-activated oven. Anyway, eventually years pass and my great big beautiful tomorrow shining at the end of every day was actually just a version of every day. Today, the present. I'll be at a slightly off version of it. Now, I think I live in the past? I say that because I look out at you, all of you, swirling by me every few minutes while I do my song and dance and it's pretty clear you've passed me by. 
there's not a lot of people out there nowadays, and some of those are some of those that are happen to be, let's say, multitasking while taking advantage of the air conditioning. And the ways they're doing it are fascinating and multifaceted. Here I am up on the stage accidentally turning my oven to 975 degrees with my voice commands and the supercomputer you have in your palm or on your wrist could turn your oven on or off from across the world using an app. To my kids up here on the stage, apps are what we're going to eat before turkey. Sorry, dad humor, can't help it. So I'm programmed. For those of you who are paying attention, who are long for the a ride, as it were, the expressions on your faces tell the story. You turn the corner from 1940, after stops in 1900 and 1920, and where you might expect to see the 1960s or the 1980s, you see tomorrow. And tomorrow is 27 years old, older than a lot of people watching me talk about the marvels of high-definition televisions. The honest truth is this. The future is a moving target, and it's too expensive for me and my family to keep up. So we have become a relic from a future past, which isn't a bad gig. I don't want you thinking I'm down in the dumps about not continually being updated to reflect the next big thing. I just want to let you know that I've come to terms with the fact that it's not what I'm meant to be. There was a time when I thought it might be, but I'm past that and I'm okay with what I am, which is a memorial. The most backwards looking thing I could be, ironically, since what it says on the tin is progress. When you leave me in a moment and spin around to where you began, my voice, how weird is that? My voice, but not me, dad, but some narrator, will reinforce what you heard when you came in. That this is all a testament to one man's vision, his wonder at how far the world had come in his lifetime made manifest. His lifetime ended in 1966. It makes sense that my carousel hasn't progressed much since then. And I sort of think that's how you want it. Want me. Preserved in amber. I'm speaking specifically now to those of you who would write in emails. Is that still the most efficient way of communicating displeasure with a corporation nowadays? If what we do up here were to change significantly or go away. <clears throat> because I'm also a memorial to that moment you first got my song stuck in your head. It's why you come back here when everyone else fights for fast passes over at the mountain. You don't pay me a visit to see how much has changed. You come here to see how much something, one thing, has stayed the same. <laughs> There's this really moving moment I think about a lot where Don Draper makes a pitch based on nostalgia. Yes, we binge Mad Men on Netflix at night when you all go home. What do you think we do with this high-definition television? <laughs> and obviously, I have a sentimental attachment to it because it's about a carousel. He's clicking through the Kodak carousel. He's about to name it that. And he talks about how nostalgia is a twinge in your heart that's more powerful than memory. Click picture of his kids how what Kodak has made is a time machine. It's not a wheel, it's a carousel because it lets us travel the way a child travels, round and round and back home again to a place where we know we are loved, he says. And yeah, I know he couldn't have been talking about my carousel in 1960 because it didn't exist for another four years yet. But I like to think his writers might have been thinking about me. I think that's my purpose. I am nostalgia now. I am a time machine, letting you travel the way you did when you were a child. Sometimes literally the same ride you took when you were a child. I live in a place where you know you're loved. I am a carousel. Sorry, I went off script there. I just felt like I needed to get that off my chest. The other dads from the other decades think I'm nuts for worrying about this too much. But I tell them, you know, 1920 will always be 1920, no matter how far we get from 1920. But every show, every burned turkey, my family becomes a little more uncanny. I think I like it that way. But I do have to think about it. All right, I'll let you go on now. If you're upset I didn't do my normal bit, just uh, stay put. When you come back around, I'll do it straight. 
and the time after that, and the time after that, fade out. The end. Oh my gosh. Yay! Oh my gosh. progress is so existential now. It's so beautiful. It, I, that was that was really really lovely. I, I did really and, like it. I don't feel like it was a downer actually. Uh, it it felt like there there is purpose in nostalgia. And there's purpose in nostalgia and and of of repetition and of uh, comfort. It's good. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, this this idea of uh, a relic of future past and so much of Disneyana is is caught up in that, right? Um, yeah, absolutely. And, and I think it becomes more immortalized when it is a relic of future past than when it's trying to be the bright, new, beautiful thing. Uh, so thank you, Charles. Yeah. That, that gave us a lot to think about. Thank you, Charles. <clears throat> so, Alice, I've got I've got this last one here. All right, one last story. Uh, and this one comes to us from uh, Nick the Hoff Beast Hoffman, or <laughs> as, as we just call him, Hoff sometimes. Um, so, friend of the show, Nick, uh, thank you so much for uh, sending this in. This one is called The Pal Around. Scratch! The turning wheel halts as an even larger blast from the sandstorm pummels the hulking metal beast. The airship overhead is no longer able to maintain its tentative grasp on the topmost cabin. The rope bridge that once served as a potential means of escape floats away with the dirigible. Now all that's left is the swinging. My organs seem to float wildly through my body as the wind flies through the metal cage and stinging every piece of exposed skin. All I can do is hold on. Grasping tightly to what remains of the ironwork, I can just barely keep myself from falling through the decayed cage. Thank God the foundation on this thing is on an island, otherwise we'd all be gone by now. The acid in my stomach churns. Nothing is stable. Nothing is solid. Not everyone can hold on. Below me I hear the rant of one of the carriages as it breaks free of its rotting tracks and the screams of the three hanging as they crumble into the, wa into the water below. The winds stop, but the swinging continues. I stare back down on the lagoon, covered in a thick rainbow, slick shimmering as we all rock back and forth. The wheel is our only way out. That's what we kept saying. There was no way for the ships to touch down on the ground. If they got, if they took time to land, it would have been over. Getting on the pal around was the only way we could get everyone out. There's no sign of the ship's return. I don't blame them after what happened, but there's still dozens of us hanging here, you bastards. Oh god, they're in the water, shouts a woman on the other side of the wheel. I can't see her, but I feel the way her fear echoes through the steel. Slowly, the shadows enter the lagoon. They must have heard the crash. The ripples of disrupted rainbow spread slowly across the surface, all pushing towards the base of the wheel. The swinging stops. Nervously, I put my left hand in my pocket and find Dad's old Zippo. Piece of my world, long gone. The cold metal of familiar comfort. Start it back up, I yell. I think I've got a way to slow them. The grizzled wheel keeper reluctantly emerges from his steel trap door and pulls the lever, eyeing the oncoming, oncoming horde. The wonked as the wheel lurches back into motion and we swing again. Slowly I climb, the wheel shudders and reality swirls all around us. The shadows close in. Finally, at the top of the wheel, the swinging slows, and I can see what's left of the kingdom. Pillars of smoke overshadow the once shining peaks of its towers. All that remains is the wheel. 
Just as soon as it came into view, it's gone, and my cage slides once again to the end of its track and swings. The shadow now almost surrounds the base of the wheel. Almost back to the bottom, I pull the lighter from my pocket and flick, flick it open. I hear an unearthly murmur of the beasts as I quickly descend towards them. Here isn't the right word. I feel it in my gut. A flame starts, but just as quickly dies. I flick it open again, and the flame seems to hold on. Sploosh! The lighter hits the oil slick, and I quickly ascend back up the wheel. I feel the heat from the lagoon below. The nails on chalkboard screeches of the beasts echo through the steel supports as the flames rise and spread. I feel the warmth of the new glow and stare skyward. From beneath the sun's glare, a rope ladder drops at my feet. It's told that it all started with a mouse. I guess it'll end with one, too. The beaming smile of that cartoon mouse fades into the distance as we sail high above the crumbling interstate and back to the farm. We'll, we'll be safe for now. Wow. <laughs> wow. That is called the pal around. Wow. <laughs> all that remains is the wheel. Oh my gosh. <laughs> right? <laughs> Wow, that uh, was intense. The the idea of a theme park as a post-apocalyptic refuge is it's it's actually one that um uh was a podcast. It was called Magic King Dom. Yeah. Uh, and I only listened to a couple of episodes of it, but it was really cool to think about. Like, can you think of a place that would be more interesting during an apocalyptic event? And I can't really. Um, no, that's exactly where I would want to to be. <laughs> uh, except unless there's some kind of I don't know shadow creatures chasing us across the well, lagoon. See, that's and... the thing: it's the shadow creatures that really do make it tough, Alice. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's whole... oh man. Uh, I also really like the incorporation of airship and, and zeppelin imagery. It reminds me of the Golden Zephyr. I uh, know that's your favorite. <laughs> yeah, so like I can imagine like these big golden zephyr looking airships flying over the uh the pal around rescuing people and then like flying off to the farm for a bright new beautiful tomorrow That'd yes be it's perfect great. i love that 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 was so good thank you hoff that was yeah, excellent thanks, hoff. uh like that one a lot and alice i guess that means that we're out of stories but my question for you is what did you notice about what theme parks inspired in us and in our guest writers um, uh, genuinely, it seems almost universally across the board. Um, the, the stories had a little uh, twinge of, of almost sadness to, to each of them, which is which is interesting to me that that is something that, that came up kind of everywhere. Uh, sadness or, or, or other not necessarily like happy, joyful emotions that we usually tie to theme parks. And I wonder if that's just... That's just us and our listeners being um, being ironic. Like, oh, wouldn't it be fun if we if we attached the uh, this like um, sadder emotion to such a happy place? But I think a lot of that is um, is this like we're we're all grown up now, and we're all we're all adults, and we can we can look at the rest of the world as being. Um, as, as being like a sad, sadder place. But theme parks tend to be like the last bastion of like, of, of joy. And, and to, so to, so to fictionalize a uh, theme park and uh, to, to, to make our own version of the story, we turn the theme park into something that, that maybe is a little bit more like real life, something with, with just a little bit more drama, with, uh, with a little more sadness. And, 
I, I think if you were to ask a bunch of children to do the same exercise, like, hey, write a story about your favorite theme park ride, I don't know if they'd do the same. I can and... imagine that that it would definitely be a lot more, like, fun and cool. They'd be like, and then I got on Space Mountain, and it was like, pew, 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 and I'm a cool space person. Like, right, like, Space have, Mountain was on... It would have that joy, space... right? Yeah, Space Mountain was on my short list of uh, when I was trying to think of something to write about. And I was like, what, what if I wrote about a space station that uh, and, and it had, you know, little rockets that took that completed little missions that that busted out from it. Um, but then I was like, oh, but something goes wrong with the space station. And that's why you're there. You're on this mission. And it would have been a something goes wrong story again or like, you know, like to 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 write fiction, to bring this drama into this world that's n- normally like perfect. Uh, just seemed seemed to be everybody's instinct when we assigned this um, when we assigned this challenge. Yeah, and yeah, I think that's just that's just people. That's just like like nature, I guess, yeah. for us to to want to uh, to make it a little bit a little bit more like real life, but like a dramatized, obviously not not real real life, especially in the case of shadow monsters chasing <laughs> us across the Pokemon post-apocalyptic world but like to bring kind of a twinge of sadness to or or like um like real emotion to the uh, yeti monster for example um and is like to to bring a little bit of of home to um to such a such a place yeah to, to such a perfect place i feel like we have this tendency to um not just go with the uh, with the preferred narrative anymore as well. Like now, now that we're, we, we gave ourselves the challenge of writing a story for something that didn't quite have a story yet um, where the story wasn't really well thought out. Right. So we wrote stories for rides that aren't necessarily a narrative because when you put a narrative on a ride, we've talked about many of the main kinds, right? Like the something goes wrong narrative and stuff like that. Um and I think we looked at these like really uh, happy sort of uh, sort of simple rides. And we said to ourselves, how could we make it more complicated? How can we complicate this idea? Um, yeah. And looking to make it more real and complicated then made it a better story. I think a story has got to have a conflict. So if we just wrote like, here is the story of the teacups one day. I sat down in a giant teacup and it spun. I had a good time. <laughs> uh, it's not really a story, right? Um, right. So, so we we made it a, a bit more complicated, a bit uh, sadder, a, a bit more negative, so that we had something for our characters to do and struggle with and struggle against. Uh, and I think right. that's really interesting. Um, yeah, but also with a twinge of uh, also kind of uh, across the board. Um, this idea of nostalgia really, really did shine forth. Most obviously with Charles's, but we all um, tend to, we all wrote, in addition to kind of an existential, like sadness or 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 depth to these stories, we all seemed to have uh, also written something that um, that reminded us of uh, of of nostalgia, of good times, or of. Um, or, or something that, or an imagery that brings us uh, some kind of of um, 
like emotional connection to something in in the past. Yeah, I mean, I mean, Lena's uh, really felt like gathering around a fire and like hearing a legend or a story, and that that kind of home really felt like it was there. Um, right, or or Awesome literally setting his in the in the past, um, which and and which gave us like a like a glimpse into what this um, you know like what this world could have been like if it really had existed in right. in the past and and as so we all get to to look back on something even even one ones that take place in in the future or in the 1998 future the future past, uh, <laughs> the future past we still get like nostalgia or something that that feels old yeah to us and and I, yeah, I really think I, I, that's really interesting. I think that's kind of the point of fan fiction in a lot of ways is to revisit uh, familiar stuff under new contexts. Uh, and I think that's part of why a lot of fan fiction is about uh, changing endings or making characters older or putting the characters in a different context because it's about the author's changing endings or getting older or being put in new contexts. And exploring those ideas through familiar characters and settings. Um, and I think that's the, it's interesting that we kind of already came to that in our very small theme park fan fiction community that we've just built here, that we're already doing yeah. some of this work uh, that it seems like is really popular in other fan fiction. Yeah, that's the, I really, really liked this challenge. This was really <laughs> fun to do. And I'm so glad that we had such uh, excellent listeners that decided to participate. And everyone seemed to really grasp the spirit of the thing. And that just, I don't know, I'm, I'm, I'm filled with joy yeah. in this moment. I, I'm Very good. really taken aback and just just so happy that, you know, 10 more episodes have gone by and we've we've continued to build this this community with our uh, friends in the podcast and we've reached out online and gotten responses like this and we're able to share them with everybody on the show today. So Alice, I want to thank you so much for being here with me. And thank you, buddy, for being the best co-host that a girl could ask for. And uh, to everyone out there, uh, thank you for listening. Uh, we have a, a little bit of show business before I actually say the the last thing. <laughs> if you, yeah, yeah, we should wrap up. <laughs> so, so Alice, it seems like our conversation about ride fiction or fan fiction for rides has come to an end, but the conversation can always continue online. Yes, absolutely. If this challenge has inspired you to write your own fiction, we would love to hear about it. And you should send it to us uh, via the internet. Yeah, I would be uh, so happy if we got like, one every two weeks and we're able to read it on every episode like have like a I and now the ride fiction that. section uh that would be so cool so please oh, do yeah. send so them if, in if you're inspired you want to keep writing for us or if you just want to talk to us we are on twitter uh you can find the show on twitter at happy places pod and i'm on twitter and on instagram at alice white thp and I'm at Buddy underscore Duquesne. Duquesne is spelled D-U-Q-U-E-S-N-E. And if you would like to talk to us further, also hit us up on Twitter or send us an email, thosehappyplaces at gmail.com. We can send you a link to our Discord server or just uh, just talk to us. We'd love to hear from you. Absolutely. Now, Alice, right now, 
if our listeners go over to our Patreon, they will hear all sorts of great extra content. Uh, for example, we just posted an episode about uh, the future of Star Tours and what might become of it in a post-Galaxy's Edge era. That's right. You can hear that episode along with uh, many other bonus episodes and a couple of bonus blog posts over at patreon.com slash those happy places. And Alice, uh, I don't know. I don't know if you remember this, but we had a little bit of an upcoming challenge for ourselves that maybe when the listeners hear this, it may already be posted or it may be getting posted soon. Part of the challenge in this week's episode was to do something that didn't have an IP or that didn't have a backstory, uh, canonically speaking. Um, Alice, you and I are going to write a Star Tours fan fiction. That's right. We are going to, a Patreon bonus episode, we are going to uh, write a full-blown uh, backstory to Star Tours. Uh, yes, we know it takes place in the Star Wars universe. We know um, uh, about where it exists in canon, but how was Star Tours invented? Yeah. Where did Star Tours come from? How was it founded? Who were the founders? What sorts of adventures and hijinks did they get up to? All this and more in our upcoming fan fiction, Star Tours The Last Airbender. Uh, <laughs> nope. <laughs> okay, well, we'll work on the title. <laughs> um, so I, I really hope you guys go check it out. Uh, those happy plate. Oh, <laughs> Patreon.com slash those happy places and alice we should thank a couple of our patreon backers yes the patreon backers who are currently sitting at the seven dollars or higher tier every month uh charles castine and th ponders who uh who you know at the seven dollars or higher you get your name shouted out on the podcast and there they are being excellent and supporting us and uh we really really appreciate them and all of you for listening yeah thanks everybody uh and if you can't support us right now the best way to support us non-monetarily is to share the show talk about it with your friends if you have a friend you think would like the show tell that friend that the show exists okay so excellent <clears throat> alice right now guess what what? Our audience is hearing our theme music. The theme music, which is uh, Golden Gate by the California Feet Warmers featuring Phil Alvin, available yeah. at www.thecaliforniafeetwarmers.com. Yes, uh, you can find that and many other tracks. And Alice, I added music to each of the stories today. And where would you have gotten that music? I got that all from the free music archive at incompetech.com. Uh, it's all written by Kevin McLeod, who puts his music on the internet for free for people to use. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you, Free Music Archive. Thank you, Incompetech.com. And Alice, I think that means that we're done. Well, this was a great episode, buddy. Thank you so much. Alice, I really enjoyed doing this with you. And to everyone out there, thank you for listening. And we hope you return to those happy places.